Atlanta News First investigates the largest investigative team in Georgia, holding the powerful accountable and fighting for you. Now, in this series of podcasts, we take you behind the scenes of our most recent investigations. Welcome to Behind the Investigation with Atlanta News First. Hi, I'm Chief Investigator Brendan Keefe with Atlanta News First, and you're watching Behind the Investigation. Joining me now is Sierra Cummings, Investigator with Atlanta News First Investigates. Good to have you here, Sierra. Thanks for having me. And today, give our viewers a little hint of what we're about to see related to the Department of Family and Children's Services. Yeah, defects, otherwise known. Um, and, you know, if you've been following our coverage, we have been looking into this state agency for over a year now. Uh, we uncover this practice called office hoteling, where kids were living in offices for sometimes weeks, sometimes months on end. And it turns out that these kids were being sent to the office because the system was overburdened. So we spent about a year uncovering that very legal practice. And what came out of that reporting was a new law, SB 133. So as of this month, the law has officially been signed into place. So that's happening at the state level. Meanwhile, the state is under scrutiny right now by the federal government. The U.S. Senate Subcommittee um, on Human Rights is actively investigating the state and how it's running its child welfare agency. So we got some new information about that. I break all of this in today's story. Um, it's about part seven of unhoused and unsafe. And one other thing to point out, though, when we talk about hoteling, we were talking about actually having at-risk children essentially in the custody of the, the Department of Family and Children's Services, DFACS, but actually living round the clock inside essentially a government office building or yeah. in the offices. And that story is going to get into this, as most of our stories did. The irony is that this is an agency tasked with keeping our children safe. One could argue uh, forcing them to live in offices and hotels um, in unsafe conditions just is not getting the job done. And so in the data that we got um, that the state had to send to the federal government, we were actually able to quantify the locations, the total amount of offices and hotels that children across the state were living in, and the numbers are really jarring. Well, let's take a look at your story, and we'll talk about it on the backside. Our reporting led to SB 133 becoming law. The goal of the legislation is to minimize the amount of kids in state custody who don't need to be, because as we found, kids with mental and behavioral health issues were sent into foster care when they likely needed health care instead. The system became overburdened, already understaffed and under-resourced. The kids were forced to live in offices and hotels, sometimes in unlivable conditions for weeks and months. SB 133 requires the courts to consider all resources to get a child help before ever considering sending them into state custody. But as this law takes effect, the state is still under a federal probe by the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Human Rights. In fact, the state's foster care division of Family and Children's Services, known as DFACS, had to supply records to federal leaders answering questions about systemic issues. Atlanta News First Investigates got a copy of the documents, which reveal defects used about 280 county offices and hotels across Georgia to house kids. Currently, the agency is short-staffed with 224 vacancies. Then comes the turnover rate. Last year, defects saw 1,254 resignations and 124 terminations. And finally, a heartbreaking number on sexual assaults of kids in foster care. Over the last five years, 
3,391 reports. There were 61 documents detailing the policies, caseloads, and initiatives. All this data is supposed to aid federal lawmakers in their investigation into how the state is running its child welfare system. The federal probe could take months. We're back now. Sierra, before we talk exactly about what the federal government is looking at and what that means, we have to reiterate that we're talking about at-risk Georgia children. They're taken from their families or they're taken from the homes where they were living, but they're being placed in situations where they were facing sexual assault in foster care, those stunning statistics. And then on top of that, I mean, in some cases, they had to go from bad to worse, no? Yeah, I mean, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, What we heard from families repeatedly is that, so you're taking my children away from me, maybe conditions that you thought were subpar, but only to put them in conditions that we feel are subpar, leaving them in offices and hotels, not to mention on top of the, the mental health cycle, it continues to put the child in, like, hey, I'm living in an office. Does anybody want me? Is anyone helping me? It's also a really expensive process. The state has to have um, uh, behavioral health aides in the offices, in the hotels, living with them. They have to contract out workers. And so that costs the state millions and millions of dollars. So mentally and emotionally, it's not an effective practice, but it's also a really pricey one. And as you saw, we uncovered that these are children that need mental and behavioral health. So um, if they need help with that, you know, sending them into foster care is not really going to get them that when they likely need health care instead. So SB 133, that's where we're at right now. The bill has been signed into law as of May 2nd by the governor. And although it doesn't ban office hoteling and it doesn't make the practice illegal, what advocates say, this legislation now um, would minimize the uh, number of kids that are in foster care that don't really need to be, that this would be like a stopgap measure. You know, okay, a child goes before a juvenile court and we realize actually they need therapy. Actually, they need a psychologist, a psychiatrist. Let's make sure we evaluate all the available resources, resources they've already been given, resources they still need to keep them with their family and to help their family um, with all the care that they may need down the line. So it'll be interesting to see over this next year how this law really has an impact on our foster care crisis here in Georgia. Yeah, the numbers are important, but behind every one of those numbers is a child. And as you point out, these are their most formative years. I interviewed an adult a few years ago uh, who was a foster child who was sexually assaulted by his foster parent. And his life is in shambles. In fact, his child ended up in defects care in part because of how his life unraveled as a direct result of his time in foster care. So it's kind of a cycle, isn't it, that we have to break? It really is a cycle. And speaking of sexual abuse, we have that number in the story that the state sent to the federal government. They said over the last five years, since fiscal year um, 2018, which really started at the end of October 2017, they said since that time, we've had less than 4,000 reports of abuse, whether Mm -hmm. sexual sexual or physical. But what's even more interesting, which we didn't even get into in this uh, particular story, is that of that nearly 4,000 reports, 
only 260 of them have been sustained. So it really just mm. begs the question, how are these allegations being investigated? How are these kids doing now after they make the allegations? Maybe they feel like there's not enough proof to be on their side, so they let the cases go. And then to your point, how does it affect them in their formative years as they grow up to be adults? You know, that's a burden that sticks mm. with them uh, for a very long time. So yeah, these are numbers that were given to the federal government, but these are also stories and these are um, our children here in Georgia. And we're not picking on the frontline child care professionals. I mean, they are to be celebrated for choosing that career for one. Two, the educational requirements are very high for what turns out to be low pay. And unfortunately, we're seeing that in those turnover numbers. Those were some of the more stunning numbers in your report because not only terminations, which were a smaller number, but people voluntarily leaving a child protection for other careers or leaving essentially their, you know, their chosen career altogether. That That's kind of a warning sign, isn't it? A red flag. Yeah, it is a red flag. People who work in child welfare say, you got to have the heart. you got mm-hmm. to know that this is a ministry to do this because this isn't a profession where you can uh, get rich. You have mm-hmm. to want to do the work and to change the system. But it does get frustrating, as we've heard from defects caseworkers, like maybe you want to affect change, but the systemic issues are so great. It feels like, man, am I am I really making the changes that I came here to make? And so unfortunately, some people leave. They do leave. You saw that there was um, about 12,000 resignations and 124 terminations. And those numbers, I mean, those are staggering numbers. They say that they are overburdened and understaffed unlike ever before. And we see that in the way that some of these cases play out. They are they do have some initiatives in place where they're trying to offer incentives to to retain workers, but also to hire workers. But it it really is a hard job. And um, a lot of times when we're looking at these cases, we we ran in a story where um, an expert said, this doesn't sound like a caseworker that doesn't care. This sounds like a caseworker who was overloaded. She just had a lot of cases. And so um, it is is sad to see that number, but we hope that with all these improvements that may come from this um, new law and then the federal investigation, that maybe it would be easier for them to retain staff. Last question, what can we expect out of this federal oversight? Is this just one of those bureaucratic things or could it actually result in some sort of change or or some sort of mandate by the federal government? Yeah, that's an excellent question. What sort of weight the, does this investigation hold? Because there are some people um, from the state level perspective that feel like, hey, this investigation is unwarranted. We're already trying to uh, put into corrective measures. But I do think um, there's something to be said about shining a light on the issues, because once the light is on it, then mm-hmm. you have no choice but to turn away from it. So Although the state is doing its own corrective actions, what we expect with this uh, federal investigation is over the course of a few months, after the state has time to look at the documents, we will have hearings from some of our top leaders here in Georgia, and they're going to present some solutions. To answer the question, though, this does have some weight, because just like any public agency, whether here in Georgia or somewhere in Florida, they need federal funding. So uh, this is kind of like accountability. If there needs to be new policies in place, if there needs to be new standards and regulations in place, we're going to see that come about if um, Georgia's child welfare agency wants to keep its federal funding. 
Money talks. That certainly makes sense. Sierra Cummings, thanks for your reporting and staying on this issue, even after getting that law passed through the Georgia General Assembly. And we will stay on it. I know you will. And for Sierra Cummings, I'm Chief Investigator Brendan Key for Atlanta News First Investigates. You've been watching Behind the Investigation on Atlanta News First Plus.